Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. Finding an undiscovered niche in the real estate market is not an easy thing to do. Jeremy Goff, CEO of Hiram Capital, identified a niche serving developers of industrial property in secondary and tertiary markets that are building infrastructure to accommodate the growth of e-commerce. Jeremy is providing debt to this sector to fill the gap of what banks will lend versus how much capital is needed and is providing his investors solid, low-risk returns. So today we have with us an impressive man who, in addition to being a brilliant business mind and a finance mind, and I just say that because I've listened to him on other podcasts, he also has my respect because the guy went to West Point, and so that is the elite of the elite in this country. And um, you know, my my hats off. This gentleman is the CEO of Hiram Capital. He is. Jeremy Goff. Jeremy, welcome to Street Smart Success. Thanks, Roger. I'm I'm excited to be here and and have a, a conversation around all that's going on. It's obviously a very exciting time in, in any market right now. So uh, excited to to talk to you about it. You got it. And welcome to the success zone. I've never said that, and, and it's probably for good reason. But you know, it's kind of corny. But <laughs> I don't know why. Not at all. <laughs> I don't know why I just had to say it. So uh, I'll just go. Let's start with the beginning. So you were there in Kansas City, which, as we talked about a little bit before we hit recording, I, I, that's a cool town, uh, I think, and um, probably like a lot of towns, un- underrated and to some degree. Are you born and raised Kansas City, or wh- where does Jeremy hail from? No, it's a great question. Um, I was born and raised in Kansas City. I went to high school at a school here in Kansas City um, by the name of Shawnee Mission North, which is one of the original, it was the original school kind of in the Shawnee Mission School District, which is a larger district here in Kansas City. And yeah, it it was a great experience. And, you know, ultimately I knew at some point I would want to move back and and so eventually did uh, about uh, 11 years ago. So you were gone then for for a bit. I mean, uh, you you didn't come back to later. Yeah, I so as you mentioned, I I went to West Point for my undergraduate studies after high school, which it, it's funny, you know, I with the new Top Gun coming out, I we there's been a lot of conversations around academies and all of that, and I think ultimately I saw the first Top Gun in 1986 in the theater and knew at that point that I wanted to go to a military academy. Ultimately, did not go to the Naval Academy, went to went to West Point, but you know, it was kind of a dream come true for me because it was one of those things where you know, since I was a, a young guy you know, wanted to do that. And then to finally get there uh, was amazing for me. I have a, a, a an irrelevant, but in my mind, a very pretty big coincidence is that I interviewed a gentleman two days ago on this podcast that not only did he also go to West Point, which in and of itself is not a huge coincidence, but you know, he went for the, he said the exact identical thing that he saw Top Gun. And he's like, yeah. that's what I want to do because of that movie. What are the odds of that in two days? It's crazy. But, you know, my generation, I think, you know, that Top Gun movie was like the ultimate recruiting video, right? It was like, um, you know, even if I'm not going to become a fighter pilot, like I want to I want to serve my country and, you know, and go to one of these academies and, and be one of those guys. So there you go. How hard back then was West Point to get into? It was hard. I mean, you know, it was, you know, it's funny because I've had this conversation with I have twin boys, actually three kids, but twin boys that are eight. And so it's it's coincidentally right around the same time that I, I saw the first Top Gun and we were talking about this. And, you know, it's it's one of those things that 
it, to get there, I feel like you have to make a decision that that's where you want to go early on, you know, and your grades obviously have to be um, pretty stellar. And then this whole process around getting congressional nominations and, and all of that and interviewing and it's quite a process. And so it's, it's a commitment, you know, uh, that you have to really make early on. And so I was thankful to get in and, and, um, and I ran track and field there and I loved my experience there. I guess I like it more looking back than I did while I was actually there. Cause I think there were times like while you're in a place like that, that you're kind of like, what did I get myself into? <laughs> but yeah, it was great. It just, it taught me even more so that, I, you know, my parents were great at teaching me the value of hard work, but I think West Point taught me again that like self-discipline and hard work um, can take you a long way. Not a huge surprise. So what, what did you run in track and field? Early on, I ran the 800. Um, and then as I put on a few pounds, I had to, had to move to the 400 because the, the smaller guys were starting to kick my butt on the 800. So it, it was a brutal race, to be quite honest. It was and in, in college, it's even more so. So, but it was great, right? I mean, I made great friends doing it and, and all that stuff. Well, when I was in high school and I just wasn't as good of an athlete as I really would love to have been, but I felt compelled to participate in a sport my first couple years just because I thought that's what you did. Well, so what did I do? I ran track and what did I run? The 800. And and I came in second to last every race only because there was this one kid that always came in behind me. But I'm the guy that understands what you're talking about. That is the hardest race because as you know like the 440 is a sprint and that's grueling but it's 440 the miles tough but it's not a sprint so the 800 is a sprint and that is a long ass sprint so that is a grueling grueling race so i know i didn't i don't think i realized how hard it was until you know my coach was like you know, your second lap needs to be faster than your first. And I think mentally to convince yourself to like hold back just barely on that first 400 and then really kick it in on the second 400, that's like a mental game that like is hard for people to grasp. And I think as an athlete, you're like, well, I'll just run fast the whole time. But there's some strategy to even an 800, right? Where it's, um, you can burn out too quick for sure. What, What a metaphor for business, by the way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I know it wasn't necessarily 10. By the way, we need to both correct. It wasn't the 800. It was the 880. And I just That's was right. re- That's reminded right. of that. As I said, the 440. I see. What What did you do after school? Um, so I was ended up um, becoming an infantry officer at West Point. And um, like most of my uh, infantry officer brothers, I ended up going through ranger school and airborne school and all that stuff. Uh, my first duty station was in Texas at Fort Hood. And ultimately, you know, I had kind of some choices on different locations and followed a girl that I ultimately didn't end up marrying, but <laughs> to Texas. And so served with the 1st Cavalry Division for a number of years and actually deployed with them to Iraq uh, between uh, 2006 and 2008. When I got back in 2008, I went to Fort Benning and spent a small amount of time with the 3rd Ranger Battalion and then ultimately kind of decided that you know, being a career officer wasn't something that I ultimately decided I wanted to do and and thought I would, you know, give it a try in business. Um, had always been attracted to the markets. I think as an infantry officer, I didn't spend a lot of time studying markets early on um, after college and was lucky enough to really meet some great mentors who, who really sort of gave me a shot at things. You know, I ended up working for a firm by the name of Blackstone for a couple of years and the folks that hired me there and worked with me really showed me the ropes. And so folks like Tony James and John Dion and, and folks like that who I who I still stay in contact with 
um, showed me how, how to look at markets. And, and I, I would say Tony probably had the largest influence on my desire to keep doing this just because working on some of his projects, he had the, you know, the amazing ability to look at what I thought were disparate data sets that didn't make any sense together and build this amazing story around the value of private equity. And watching and working with him and watching him do that just really inspired me to like, I was like, this is something that, you know, you don't necessarily, what we do in this business is not rocket science. I think everybody should know that it's, it's really just, it's really just looking at data sets and trying to find unique patterns and, and reasons why you should be in one place or the other, but really worked there first. And that's kind of where I really got excited about what we're doing. And then ultimately decided to move back to Kansas city and went to work for a firm by the name of Tortoise Capital that was a large investor in the master limited partnership arena, which for folks who don't know what that is, it's really, I mean, master limited partnerships are just a corporate structure, but ultimately every pipeline in the U S at one point was, was pretty much a master limited partnership. It was a very interesting model because it it was basically a a distribution model where, you know, most of, most of the profits that came out of these pipelines would get distributed through master limited partnerships to, to investors in those and it allowed them, they were very capital markets heavy. So they were always going back out to capital markets and, and either sourcing debt or equity in that way. And ultimately, as we all know, that, that market dried up a bit uh, as oil prices went down and, and we thought we were going to start probably exporting more. But um, obviously, those pipelines are still very much needed today. But it was a great experience. And I think I hadn't done a lot of work in public markets, which that gave me really sort of the breadth of knowledge I had around public equities at the time. You know, you were talking about, you know, what you learned at Blackstone. I guess, first of all, just a small detail, not hugely important, is did you live in New York at the time? I did. I lived in Midtown. And um, I think living in, well, for one, I I, I wouldn't tell you that I, I actually lived. I worked in Midtown. I don't know that I saw my apartment very often. Um, but yes, yeah, I did live in New York. I see. Okay. And when you said it taught you how to look at markets, you know, that, that really kind of piqued my interest. And then you went on to say, you know, kind of the ability to look at maybe disparate data sets and maybe, maybe that's not exactly what you said, but, but kind of draw, you know, see, see a picture or what have you. But, but aside from that, what would be an example of, cause you know, the, the, you know, the iconic Blackstone is, you know, everybody worships at that altar. What, what did you learn about ways to look at markets apart from how you, you know, it'd be an example. So at the time, so this was right around when Blackstone um, was in the market with Blackstone Capital Partner 6, uh, which ended up being, I think, about a $22 billion private equity fund, which at the time was the largest, I think, that had been raised. And they were just launching Blackstone Energy Partners 1. And we had just come out of the financial crisis not long ago. And I think a lot of institutional investors were under this impression that the illiquidity that comes along with investing in private equity was too dangerous. And, you know, so you were really, you're out there in the market with a new fund and you're trying to convince these guys who had just been locked up through the financial crisis that private equity was still an effective way to generate higher returns or, you know, above public market returns. And so what Tony was great at was saying like, well, let's look at, let's look at the broad market. And he would pull in things like real estate prices and, and, you know, home prices and, and we would look at sort of the S&P 500 and then look at volatility and correlations. And in my mind, being a young guy, I felt like these, you know, how do all of these go together to tell this story? I mean, I, and ultimately what he would, would show you is that Blackstone's ability to create value by investing privately in these companies and then either taking them public or selling them strategically to another buyer was more effective than uh, many of these other asset classes, right? 
and, and you know, by looking at either their inherent volatility or, or actual, you know, we, we like to say that assets aren't correlated. I mean, I think everybody's probably heard that, but like it, at the end of the day, many of them are, right? We just don't see it right in front of us. And so I think understanding that what real correlation was and, and what really drives value within companies can be told through other markets, not just the one that you're in. Seeing a bigger, seeing a bigger picture, I guess. I mean, to oversimplify by a lot. Okay. And then, so you were in Kansas City and you were with the company and I forget the name of it. You said it? Uh, tortoise, tortoise Capital. That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. Tortoise, Tortoise, Tortoise. Okay. And and so kind of maybe give, you know, create a bridge of, of from Tortoise to where you are currently and what you're doing. Sure. Um, so I was with Tortoise for about 10 years. My last stint there uh, was um, as a chief development development officer at Tortoise and had really, I had really kind of gotten interested in the private credit markets. And I think we've seen that story play out a bit. I was really interested in the fact, for one, that direct lending and non-bank lending had become much stronger post-financial crisis. And a lot of that was as a result of the Dodd-Frank legislation that really started to kind of restrict how much exposure banks could have based on deposits and things like that. And and what, what you started to see was that lenders within private equity firms, so for example, Blackstone had uh, a group that they had bought several years earlier by the name of GSO, which was a private credit shop. It's now Blackstone Credit, but it ultimately maintained its own brand for a while. And what they were doing was ultimately providing leveraged buyout debt to other private equity firms. Instead of traditionally going to the cities and Credit Suisses and JP Morgans of the world, they were, they were lending amongst each other. And I thought it was really interesting that you saw these firms step up and kind of fill the gap where banks had previously uh, been the largest players in the market. And I thought, well, this this direct lending thing could go in a lot of different directions. I mean, you could use it against real estate and a number of different things. And so, or while I was at Tortoise, I, I built a private credit platform that was lending against uh, real estate assets and, and project finance assets and stuff like that. And I, I, re- I just really wanted to grow that and, and really focus more broadly. We had a very niche strategy at Tortoise where um, it was primarily focused on schools and, and renewable energy assets and, and stuff like that. And I, I wanted to go out and broader do a broader exercise around commercial real estate and, and other credit type assets. And so my partner and I, uh, his name's Adam Peltzer, uh, we ultimately left Tortoise and started Hiram Capital uh, as a private credit sort of alternative credit shop to, to focus more broadly and, and focus on some of the assets that we were seeing that, that we ultimately couldn't with Tortoise. Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P&L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and therefore can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, vice president, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305-467-5909. You'll be glad you did. Just to back up a half a step, when Blackstone was lending to, you know, other PE firms or doing leverage buyouts, to my oversimplified, uneducated brain, that feels risky. And so what I'm wondering is, and inevitably they've got armies of Ivy League 
guys, highly brilliant and analytical, hedging the risk. And, you know, you know, I know this isn't back of the napkin kind of stuff, but nonetheless, it, it feels, it sounds risky to the uninitiated. So my simple, simple question is that like, what kind of rates would, would they lend money in that, in that scenario? Right. And so I think a good way to kind of like walk into this is to assume sort of, let's just take a look at a standard sort of capital structure, which let's just assume like an 80-20 split, right? So 80% debt, 20% equity, or even 50-50 if you want. Um, so traditionally, they, w- they would go out and, right, they're they're providing the cash equity on a, on a transaction. And as most folks know, leverage buyout means you're doing it on debt primarily. And so, you know, they would go out and, and, and syndicate senior debt in those rates at the time. I mean, this is a decade ago, but let's just assume it's today, right? So um, today, if you were going to go out and source bank debt on something like that, you're probably looking at between three and five percent on 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 the debt that you would provide al- alongside the equity. Well, there's also what we in between there what we call sort of mezzanine and pref equity, which are junior slices. The pref equity is is an equity instrument that's that's part of the equity pool, but it behaves very much like a, a debt instrument in terms of paying coupons and things like that. And mezzanine debt is kind of in between the senior debt and, and the equity. So it's, it's, it's a much higher price debt, but as long as the equity pool below you is strong and, you know, you feel like you've underwritten appropriately, you know, generally speaking, you're some, you're pricing somewhere between the cost of equity and, and the cost of the senior debt. So if Blackstone's underwriting a deal to 25% IRR over call it seven years, you know, you're probably in between eight and 12%. On a slice like that, right? It's a smaller slice, and it, generally speaking, if you're pricing it right, it could be very uh, accretive to the equity. Still, I got it. It's not. It's not an entirely hard to grasp, uh, you know, structure, and, and not entirely uncommon by any stretch as well. It's, it's, I, I've looked at a lot of uh, a lot being a very relative term, but a lot for me, a lot of because I'm a passive investor, a lot of structures in 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 real estate syndications, and it sounds very familiar to exactly what you're describing. And then, what what led you into the real estate piece of this when you were at Tortoise? So we were really, so we were looking, we were watching the real estate market in general. And, you know, there were even sort of back two or three years ago, you started to see signs that between, you know, buying things online through Amazon. So you have this sort of last mile effort that the the build out within the US centric supply chain was going to need to grow substantially across, you know, across basically every market. And at the time, the primary markets, sort of like what we call the tier one markets, were they were relatively well built out, but it was these secondary tertiary markets that you don't necessarily always think of that still didn't necessarily have the logistical build out needed to get, you know, something delivered overnight or in, you know, when you think about these, you think about cold storage and things like this. And then as we started to go into the pandemic, you started to see the disruption that that caused to supply chains. And you kind of felt like, you know, there, this is turning a bit and, and this tends to go through cycles and where the U.S you know, offshores everything and we go to a more globalized type supply chain and then something like COVID happens that none of us were expecting and then we all, we pull it all back in, right? So I think the combination of both e-commerce and then, you know, sort of the re-onshoring of supply chains was going to create this massive need for uh, industrial build-out across the United States. And so that's kind of where we wanted to go. And I, I would say that, you know, Adam's experience in particular had primarily been in high-yield credit 
he had worked in a various positions in the credit market. That had been his entire career. And, you know, I had spent a lot of time looking at some of these real estate markets and we thought, well, what, you know, we need to go start talking to these guys because a lot of them were regional developers. And so they were relying on regional bank debt and local bank debt to get their deals done. And they hadn't put any sort of mez or prep within there. And it became more attractive because the velocity of the build out was growing. And so some of these construction companies and developers were selling their assets before ground was even broken. And so they had forward purchase agreements on on some of these. And so we started kind of pitching this idea to some of these large engineering and construction firms and developers and said, you know, would you guys be interested in, in layering some of this into some of your projects that you're relatively certain around executing and and it, it made sense to them. And so, you know, we've seen a lot of other firms start to come out doing this, but, you know, we were at least able to sort of lock down some great opportunities around, around this industrial build out. And I would say that's kind of why we're focused in commercial real estate today. That's the most attractive sub market, or I guess, you know, slice of the commercial real estate market that we like today. But that doesn't mean that we, we won't shift to some other assets as time goes on. But that's really the driver for us right now. Are you saying that prior to, you're approaching some of these firms, these engineering construction firms, what have you, for the build out of infrastructure and, you know, secondary tertiary markets. Are you saying prior to kind of your approach, it, it was just basically equity and bank debt? And then you carved out, you know, a couple different uh, pieces of, of the of the stack. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, the you know after Dodd Frank, the equity requirements for developers became much more strenuous, and so you know ultimately you had banks that would lend at max seventy percent loan to cost on a project, or even seventy percent loan to value on an existing asset, right? So before they'd gone as high as eighty, eighty five, and so now you've got developers and construction firms who who were having to put up as much as forty percent equity on a deal, which is fine, right? It it, it definitely de risks. The, the opportunity, but at the same time, their ability in a good market to do multiple projects becomes much more difficult because they're stretching their equity much further on one project, whereas before they were doing two or three under the same uh, equity pool. So, and so we said, like, go, go ahead. You go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you know, so we our thing was, listen, we we don't want to get overly aggressive on how how much further you're taking your debt, but even if you were to reduce your equity exposure by ten percent that's accretive to your equity return. And now you can take that other 10% and go do another project, right? And so that's kind of, you know, that was our kind of our pitch, as it were. And and we were trying to price it effectively so that it still remained, uh, it didn't put anybody underwater, I guess, is what I would say. So, I mean, you just, like you said, going all the way back to Black Blackstone, I mean, you just really saw just a very a brilliant opportunity, a market timing, and you filled a need. Tell me what you think about you know, which was, I think, came as a real surprise, if not downright shock, a few weeks ago. And we're now in the first half of June of 2020, when all of a sudden Amazon said, you know, we're not, we're not paraphrasing probably poorly, but we're not building anymore. In fact, we're starting to sublease some of our space. And, you know, what, what do you think is going to happen with industrial, you know, warehouse build out, you know, from now to the next three or five or 10 years? You think it's just like kind of like a bump in the road and then it just we get over and then it's, it returns at a torrid pace or that came as such a surprise? It, it did. And I think, I think one of the things that Amazon is realizing is is that going out and building their own warehouses and then and then you know fully owning them is is maybe not the most I guess it's not adding a ton to their bottom line but 
it was definitely a shock, I think, for us. I think the way we look at it is, again, different parts of the United States run in different cycles when it comes to real estate. So like if you're looking at the Kansas City market, and I say cycles because I think I've mentioned this before, but like I, you know, I'm a big fan of Howard Marks and how he looks at the markets. And he's a very big cyclical sort of guy. And each cycle isn't exactly the same as the last, but there are things in there that tell you what might happen. And I think we're very focused on looking at each individual region and understanding where they're at in their build-out cycle. And so some regions won't make any sense at all, right? But some will. And the need to continue to build out some of that infrastructure for the non-Amazon distributors of the world is still is still very much there. And so, you know, maybe before where we were looking at 2 million square foot warehouses, now we're looking at 500 to 1 million square feet. And we're building some sister assets alongside that for the non-Amazons of the world who are not going to take down an entire warehouse, but you're going to need four tenants versus one, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes it makes total sense. I was just, you know, I had just bought, you know, timing being what it is. I had literally just decided to buy Prologis, you know, some Prologis stock, I think literally within days of the Amazon announcement. So my timing wasn't great. And so what you're doing is then you are currently at Hiram. Are you then just syndicating debt and, and you're getting investors and then, you know, finding people to loan the money to? And is that the model or? Yeah, or? you know, it's <laughs> going back to timing. You know, it's all, you know, it's kind of like in the military. You have a plan, right? And as soon as as soon as you leave the line, as soon as you head out to, to execute the mission, everything changes always, right? Like. Uh, I mean, without fail. And so for, <laughs> for us, I think, you know, the, the goal was to kind of in simultaneously raise capital to do this and then, and then build a pipeline to, to execute on. And I would say our pipeline got really, really strong, really fast. And so, you know, I, I would say that our pipeline is very strong in terms of the industrial market. I think we're, and now we're going out and sort of we're raising a fund, but then also doing a lot of our investing through SPEs uh, with individual investors, insurance companies, and the like, who are very income focused, and and that's been uh, a good place for us. And you know, ultimately, where we're pricing our debt, in you know, getting between eight and a half and ten percent on an annual basis is is going to be attractive, regardless of when the Fed decides to stop raising rates or not, right? So. I think we're providing what I think is truly an uncorrelated income stream. And so um, I think that's really attracted some folks to us is that, you know, it's something that makes sense and, and they, they like the income and, and we can be flexible. And so that's, that's great for our pipeline because a lot of the borrowers we have are looking for some flexibility in terms of structure and things like that. And then how long do you require people to commit the money to? Yeah. So our fund itself is a, is a, is a six year fund. I would say, you know, in terms of each debt instrument that we originate, they're generally right around 36 months. And, you know, the duration on those is probably closer to 18 months. And so if you're going in through an SPE, you're likely, you know, locked up for, you know, 18 months-ish. And in the fund, um, typically, you know, our investment period is around three years. And then we're, we're distributing on a quarterly basis all of the income that comes off. And then I, w- I would assume that, you know, most of those assets will have rolled off by the end of year six. Got it. Here's the dumb guy question. The next, the next, the next dumb guy question. What's an, what's an, what's an SPE? Uh, so SPE is just a, it's a special purpose entity, right? It's, it's really just an LLC or, or a partnership that's created for the purpose of, of holding what we do. So 
we go out and, and, and create an LLC that holds, for example, preferred equity position in one real estate asset. And so we create that SPE, uh, our investors put money into that SPE, which funds the preferred equity. And then basically once that asset is sold and the, the instrument is complete, then it just kind of is gone. This is not to be intended to be contrarian in, in the sure. least. It's just for pure 100% edification. So I invested money with a guy, and this is like, feels like in terms of level of sophistication, literally 180 degrees from what you do. But, but I invested with a guy that basically does hard money loans to house flippers in markets like St. Louis and Indianapolis and Memphis and what have you, uh, 65% loan to value and, you know, first, first lien. And he pays me at 8%. That feels to me very, um, you know, you never know what's going to happen with the world, you know, get turned upside down and everything, all bets are off for anything. But on the risk continuum, uh, that feels very low risk. How would you say that compares to what you're doing, given that it, it sounds like you're doing, you know, again, uh, just from a rudimentary perspective against new construction? Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's similar. Um, I would say, some of the some of the differences, like if because I've gotten I've actually we we we've had a number of conversations around around something similar. So you know I think for one you know we're dealing with counterparties that are institutional or corporate or or what have you, and so the balance sheets behind the equity that we generally have below us is is very robust, and that's part of our underwriting process is knowing that if everything goes poorly, they still have the wherewithal to take out our position, right? And so we we focus on I think in hard money lending, you know, on a single asset like a house flipper, it's a little riskier because you have one guy and there's probably a personal guarantee tied to it, right? And which, as we all know, is sort of a great um, moral imperative, but doesn't always equal uh, safety. <laughs> yeah. How, how, how eloquently put. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, but, you know, and so that, that's what we're looking for. And I think it's, it's a little bit different in that regard. And, you know, um, home prices, I do worry about like individual residential real estate to an extent because we've seen, and I don't know what the market is where, where you're at, but the market in Kansas City has, was, has been very hot for a, a while. And, you know, I, I think with interest rates going up and depending on how high they go and how high mortgage rates go up, the housing market is going to shift on us. And a lot of the value that was maybe there is going to go away. And so that, that concerns me on the residential side um, a little bit. And then you have these guys that have the equity in these houses, like it, they're going to be stretched, right? I mean, a little bit because they're going to see some, they're going to see their, their, their value degrade a little bit. So we try to maintain ourselves in markets and underwrite guys with guys that have for instance, you know, a couple billion dollars in cash so that like, you know, our, our $20 million position is, is not something they're concerned with. Ultimately, they're, they're willing to take on that whole equity picture. And do you, and, and so let's say they have a billion dollars in cash. And so what you're saying is, you know, that ultimately is your security, which you don't have with a house flipper who's not sitting on a hundred, hundred and, uh, yeah, I, I think that's the biggest thing is we feel like our backstop is a little stronger right now. Again, <laughs> How many times have we all said something like that? And then, and then we have one of these black swan events that changes the entire picture, right? So there's, there's no, 
I can't tell you that like what I'm saying is is going to play out because quite frankly, like we've all seen the experts be wrong on this stuff time and time again. But it gives me a little more comfort uh, around what we're doing, for sure. You know, I really thank you for being patient and, and really bringing it down to a level that, that I and, you know, uh, theoretically my listeners could understand. That sounds cool. How, how big of a firm do you guys have? Are you guys like boutique and just a, a handful of smart guys in an office or what does that look like? Yeah, we, we, we are. We're boutique. I, you know, we don't necessarily have a giant desire to become a behemoth. I think my partner and I really enjoy what we're doing, right? This is, it's, it, we like it. And as soon as it gets to a size where we feel like it's no longer fun, then I think we're, we're not, we're, we're, we're we've grown beyond where we want to be. And so, and, and honestly, for us to be nimble, being large as anyone in a bold, in a large firm, like a Blackstone or a KKR would tell you, like having too much capital can be a problem too. Right. And so the ability to be nimble goes away and, and the ability to be flexible and, and, and move around in markets, it, it gets much, much harder. And so I think we want to stay kind of in that nimble size. Well, I mean, my my projection onto what you're doing, is it the two of you or do you guys have a hand, uh, some administrative people or what does that look like? Yeah, we have some administrative people um, and we have, we have a couple uh, analysts that we use. Um, and then we really, you know, in terms of the back office admin and all of that, there's some great firms out there now that you can outsource to where you don't have to build the entire ecosystem within your own firm. So we, we've taken that approach as well. I mean, what I'm hearing is a very, very clean, probably a pretty darn profitable business that, uh, you know, you probably don't have to work uh, 80 hours a week, probably make a great living and, you know, have your little spot in the sun is kind of what I'm hearing. Uh, I I mean, that's what I, that's what I was hoping for, quite honestly. I mean, you nailed it on the head. I think we, we like what we're doing. We don't, you know, we have a great team, you know, it's really more of a family, I think at this point. And, and so a lot of the, you know, and again, our fees are what they are. There's no, there's nothing hidden in any of it. Um, we give investors, you know, what we tell them to. Our biggest thing was, you know, when, when folks give us money, we want to deliver what they, what we told them we were going to do. And, and um, if we can do that, then everything will be, be great. So, how, how many approximately investors do you guys have? We're a, a little over a dozen investors today. Got it. Got it. Fantastic, man. Well, ho- hopefully I can get you to, to the, uh, to, I was going to 14. I don't want to say 13. It's an unlucky number. Um, well, you know, and, and I guess, you know, for your listeners, you know, we, even if you don't like, we're happy to talk to, to anyone about what we're doing. I think, you know, regardless of whether they're writing a check or not. And so, um, we just enjoy talking about what we're doing. And I think if we can educate the market on, on different elements, we're happy to do that. So it's, it's been great chatting with you. Uh, I, I appreciate that. How, within within the space, and you found a really good niche, super, super smart within, and, and, it, and it feels niche right? So you're probably not, mm-hmm. you're probably not, you know, trying to elbow too many people out here is what I'm getting. But how, within the, within the scope of what you do, how do you differentiate your, yourselves? I, I think it's, it's, it's our relationships within these, these, um, these smaller markets, the developers and the engineering and construction firms that we work with. And I think one of the big differences, if, if we were a large, you know, multi-billion dollar manager and we walked in and started trying to convince them to do something like this, that's a much different picture than Jeremy Goff walking in and, and asking questions and just like talking to folks. And so I, I think our differentiator is our ability to get into these markets when, when others can't. And, and I'll tell you, you know, a lot of the bigger firms have, 
have been interested in our ability to get into those markets. And so, you know, I think that's our big differentiator is just, I think our deal flow is, is unique for sure. You know what? It's been an inspiration listening to you talk. I mean, um, oh, well, thank you for having me. It's, it's been great. Yeah. How would one uh, get a hold of you, Jeremy? Sure. So, so our website is www.hiramcap.com and there's an info, like an info link and that'll go straight to my assistant and she will set up a time to talk to anybody who'd like to learn more or just, just talk, you know, talk markets. So. Got it. Well, thank you uh, a zillion and uh, I've learned a lot and I very much appreciate your time. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Right,